Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Yulia Mendel, a Ukrainian journalist who served as press secretary and spokesperson for Volodymyr Zelensky from 2019 until 2021, has written a book about the considerable number of historic events she's been witness to. Her book, The Fight of Our Lives, My Time with Zelensky, Ukraine's Battle for Democracy and What It Means for the World, is published by One Signal, a Simon & Schuster imprint, and she joins us now. Welcome to our show. Hi, Leonard. Uh, Nice uh, being on your platform and to talk to your audience. You begin your book with a a timeline of modern Ukraine beginning in 1990 in the last years of USSR and the first years of an independent Ukraine. I suspect most Americans only have the haziest idea of what happened during those (laughs) years. After after the collapse of the Soviet Union, didn't a popular referendum on December 1st, 1991 confirm Ukraine's declaration of independence? Well, of course, uh, we are an independent country for the last 31 years. We are very proud of this. And believe me, it was not the easiest path. Mm. Um, I consider that Ukraine, and like many people know, that Ukraine is actually the biggest territory of freedom and democracy in post-Soviet region. But this path towards democracy was really very chaotic and very, very difficult. And I tell a lot of details why it was so difficult in the book, the fight of our lives it's actually you know the whole thing is the fight of our lives because it's not only about the war it's the fight for market economy it's the fight against corruption it's the fight against oligarchs against russian pressure and against russian penetration in all spheres of our lives um yes with the signing of the documents and with the referendum in 1991 um, the, with the collapse of the USSR officially, USSR did not uh, disappear in the lives of ordinary people. You know, it took years so that people were adapting to the new realities. That's why 90s were really very difficult. But I think that 2000s, like new century, already brought new waves of fresh air, uh, new relations with the West. And right now, people from occupation, from Russian occupation, they say that when Russians arrived and started stealing toilets and washing machines from our houses, we understood how much we achieved. So it's a beautiful country these days. I'm very proud to be uh, the generation of new independent Ukraine. And that's what the book is about. Yeah, well, it was the poorest country in Europe at independence. And how did that affect your life um how did it affect your schooling oh yeah you're right well the 90s i remember is really very dark time there were moments when you know we hardly had anything to eat there were moments when uh the inflation was over ten thousand percent there were moments when the state could not pay my mom as a doctor a salary so we stayed and there were really food poor. shortages. Yeah, and I you mean, like, an yeah, of goods. definitely, and we could not afford ourselves if we saw some food. Or, oh, for instance, for you to understand, uh, for me as a kid, like when I was five, six, ten years old, uh, jeans one was was one of the biggest dreams. I mean, like ordinary jeans, mm-hmm. we could not afford buying them because it was lack of, you know, any kind of uh, uh, type of products and clothes. And of course, it was very expensive for us. So I remember that that was, you know, the first years, they were really very poor years. And my father, you know, he needed to go abroad to earn some money. And we were dealing with the help of grannies who had their garden. So we were surviving. We were surviving. And also, of course, it's about the language. Uh, You know, Russia tried to influence Ukraine's culture for years and years. And uh, Ukrainian language has been banned under Russian Empire long ago and under Soviet Union for at least 40 times. Imagine what it is. It is the kind of identification, right? And uh, like our uh, national identity. And we were banned to speak our own language. So with the country's independence, uh, Ukraine has got first Ukrainian schools and Ukraine has got opportunity to speak Ukrainian again. And I'm very proud that I'm, you know, the one who can speak Ukrainian freely, who operates in Ukrainian rights, makes journalism. 
Um, so yeah, these are big and big things that are happening in the country. In Ukraine right now, I'm staying in touch with a lot of Ukrainians. They are waiting for the speech of Vladimir Putin. And uh, we believe that he is going to announce fake referenda in occupied Ukrainian territories. Yes. And we've just heard, uh, heard from Jake Sullivan that he believes that it's, there is possibility that Putin can um, call for general mobilization. Well, we don't know, but um, definitely he is going to speak out when we are on air. And you're, you're back in Ukraine now. I'm still in the United States, my last days in the United States, but I didn't leave Ukraine through the war. So I'm explaining in the book how the war started for me personally, for my then boyfriend and now husband. And we made this decision, principal one, not to leave the country. So we, we stayed through all the time when there was the hottest phase of war. We were traveling and my then boyfriend went to the front lines to fight. He was, you know, um, he, he brought me to the western city of Lviv, went to the south of Ukraine. He told me that he wanted to regain back my hometown, Kherson, uh, for, as a wedding gift. And where uh, is, fact, your, where is that, your hometown yeah. located? What part of Ukraine? Because it's a very mm-hmm. large country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as I mentioned, it's in the south of the uh-huh. country. So Kherson is the only region that um, borders uh, the peninsula Crimea uh, that Russia annexed back in 2014. And uh, that's why it's very easy for Russians uh, to uh, allocate there a lot of soldiers because they move exactly from Russia through the Crimean bridge to Crimea and then to Kherson. This is like one of the ways for them to come from Russia right now. Now, I asked you about your schooling. Were you studying English when you were young? Uh, When I was around five years old, my parents uh, decided that I needed to study English. (laughs) They themselves never studied English. The Soviet Union had a tradition to study German after the World War II. So, you know, they saw that the West was speaking English and they saw a lot of opportunities with that. And there was always this stereotype that if I knew English, (laughs) I could marry some foreign (laughs) And you wound up marrying a a Ukrainian anyway. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Let's talk a bit about Zelensky. Uh, Of course. Why was... Now, there was a lot of poverty in the early days, although uh, Ukraine developed its agricultural capabilities after it became independent. Now is a major... was a major supplier of of, uh, agriculture. But... um, why was his family spared having to deal with the poverty that was affecting so many others? Well, uh, I'm not sure about how far their poverty level was going, uh, but I know that majority of Ukrainians was suffering as our family was suffering. And I saw the apartment where his parents still live, and this is, believe me, a very modest background. It's uh, uh, the level of, um, you know, Soviet tradition that uh, came, you know, to independent Ukraine when the state actually was not providing big salaries, market salaries, and people really were struggling. Uh, But Zelensky, he decided to make his fate differently. So uh, he made a very big business in Ukraine, and it was enormously challenging challenging thing. When we think about Zelensky as of a comedian, we often forget that, in fact, he is a lawyer by education. Mm -hmm. And also, he built one of the biggest businesses in post-Soviet country, which was very difficult because Russia really tried to stop him, really tried to stop his shows, uh, performances, and penetrated the information space in Ukraine, entertainment space in Ukraine. Uh, So that was really very, very challenging. And uh, I think he developed as a leader, while, uh, you know, building a big business uh, of, of humor, humor empire in Ukraine. Let's go back a bit into the history. What led to the Orange Revolution in 2004? And then mm-hmm. the protests in 2013 and 2014, the so-called mm-hmm. Revolution of Dignity. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Uh, in general, we can characterize uh, these both revolutions as the fight against Russian uh, meddling in our political life. 
um, for the reason that Russia was trying to uh, put its puppet, uh, uh, a president who would be fully under Russian control. And, and 20- President Viktor Yanukovych mm-hmm. yes, lives in right. exile you're- in Russia now. So uh, he did not manage to get to that position back in 2004, but in 2010 he became the president of Ukraine with a lot of a lot of fraud. And in 2014 we had the revolution 2013-2014 to yeah to get rid of him. Uh, actually, of course, we wanted to have justice because he was doing uh, corruption. He was the most corrupt Ukrainian president. He was pro-Russian president. He was turning us from the European Union to Russia. And that's what caused a lot of protests. And he behaved very aggressively because uh, he made the police first to attack the group of young students. And then actually uh, at, in February 2014, over 100 people who were protesters were just shot down in the city square in Kiev, in Ukraine's capital. Uh, you know, that's why we think if, you know, if we can stand against people who want to be dictators, if we can stand against autocratic practices, then we believe that Russia can do this too. And uh, that's why we you know, don't justify having a dictator as a leader of Russia. And that's why nothing that he is doing can be somehow justified. In 2014, uh, Russia annexed Crimea and then invaded Donbass. And that conflict was resolved by the Minsk protocol. Now, where were you living at the time? Because Ukraine is such a large country. Did your family feel threatened at all? Uh, You're right. After uh, the Russian pro-Russian president left the country, fled the country, Russia responded with annexation of Ukrainian peninsula Crimea and with military conflict in the eastern region of Donbass. I'm explaining the details in the book, The Fight of Our Lives, and if anyone thinks that that was a small conflict, they are wrong. Mm-hmm. 14,000 of people died in Donbass, and millions of Ukrainians lost their homes. Um, so, yeah, Ukraine tried to find the peaceful solution for these military uh, actions, like war, actually, for eight years, and Zelensky continued that. I'm writing a lot of details in the book how he was trying to reach peace. And one of the biggest ideas was actually to move in a, with a mild diplomacy. Um, he wanted to rebuild the infrastructure in Donbass to show that occupied part and to show Russia that Ukraine was more attractive as a democracy. But also he was negotiating with Putin, uh, mostly over the telephone, and there were groups of people who negotiated with Russian uh, delegations. But And once he even met Putin. So there was such a format created. It was called the Normandy meeting, uh, where uh, uh, the leaders of Germany, France, Ukraine, and Russia were meeting to negotiate how to achieve peace in Donbass. And uh, within this format, uh, Zelensky met with Putin once in Paris back in 2019. And I was present at that meeting. And believe me, the whole Ukrainian delegation delegation we we were one nerve you know we really were watching the the solution to the fate of our country that that was the feeling my guest today's Leonard Lopate at large is Iulia Mendel (laughs) I-U-L-I-I-A Mendel her book The Fight of Our Lives My Time with Zelensky Ukraine's Battle for Democracy and What It Means for the World is published by One Signal Publishers this is WBAI New York 99.5 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I want to back up again just a little bit. You mentioned of that course. Zelensky had a law degree, but pursued a career in comedy. And how important is the fact that he played the Ukrainian president in a TV series that was on the air from 2015 to 2019? Well, here is a small secret for you. Uh, as I understand, he wanted to run for the president a little bit earlier than in 2019, like in 2014. But then he understood he was not prepared. And probably 
you know, he tried to implement the dream of many Ukrainians on the screen, uh, showing how much he was understanding the hardships of Ukrainians because he is a person from the people, you know, just an ordinary a political man. outsider. But he got 73.23% of the vote. And, and I don't think he could get away with wearing that khaki T-shirt if he was the president of almost any other country. Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, the question is that his uh, uh, dream implemented on the screens was really clear to many people. And that was really uh, good electoral promotions because he put there the program, what he wanted to do in the country, how he saw Ukraine in the future. In many ways, it was a very popular thing. Uh, on the other hand, he started learning how to rule the country, um, being a real president a little bit later, and probably understood that it's different from how to play a president in the uh, comedy show. Well, during the presidential campaign, he promised to end the conflict with Russia, and obviously that didn't happen. Um, now, after you graduated from university, how soon were you able to establish a career as a journalist? Uh, I'm assuming it must have helped that you not only speak Ukrainian, but also Polish and English, and uh, I assume some Russian? Well, I speak uh, Russian fluently. My parents uh, live in the region which is Russian-speaking, which shows the absurdity of this war because Putin destroys the regions that are Russian-speaking. Mm. So if though I was Ukrainian-speaking, you know, by myself, I grew up in the region where people around me were speaking Russian. So I'm very fluent in both Ukrainian and Russian. And I understand Polish very well. Uh, after I uh, graduated from the university, um, I had my dissertation. Uh, I, I defended my dissertation. And uh, at the same time, I started my work as a copy editor and then had all career on Ukrainian television. When I applied and wrote for the articles position, for the New York Times and the Washington when, Post. When I applied for the position of the press secretary, I had been already working with the New York Times for two and a half years, working mm -hmm. on the biggest international political things and the, the, the events that were happening in Ukraine. Now, how did you come to be to work as Zelensky's press secretary? Didn't you beat <laughs> out 4,000 other contestants? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's unbelievable still, but I'm explaining uh, in details uh, in the book, in the fight of our yeah, lives. We got a lot I, of stuff to cover here. <laughs> How, yeah, how I actually, uh, you know, uh, was feeling while applying for this position. Um, so many friends around were saying me to apply, but I didn't want at the very beginning for the reason that Zelensky was as popular as a rock star and it seemed like everyone wanted to work for him. So I believe that my chances were really very low, you know. Um, but then I applied and it happened. There was HR company and we had different stages of competition. He Actually, Zelensky was the first president to open transparent competitions for top political positions. And the last my uh, stage of competition was the interview with the president so uh, I was thinking that was already, you know, a, a good thing for the memoir uh, if a president mm -hmm. of the country was coming on Saturday to the office just to interview me. Mm -hmm. um, so they asked a lot of questions. They actually tested me uh, if they were like media sharks, you know, and I were already press secretary. And then Zelensky asked a question that I think made his decision. He asked me about my motivation for uh, uh, this job. And I said, you know, if he, a person from this modest background from some province, could become the president of Ukraine in a democratic way, and if I, uh, uh, just, you know, a journalist from, you know, some poor background from another region, in a transparent way could become his press secretary, what is it if not a Ukrainian dream when everyone can achieve whatever he or she wants? And I think then he understood that we, we were sharing the same vision for our country, and he hired me. And while you were working as his press secretary, you were witness to a wide range of major events, everything from Zelensky's meetings with Vladimir Putin in Moscow to the phone calls with Donald Trump that led to the first impeachment but trying to pressure Zelensky into investigating <laughs> Joe Biden. What were those calls from Trump like? How aware were you? Were you on the line? 
No, actually, that's the deal. I I was not at that moment present, uh, and I explained in my book why it happened. But I was dealing with all the media inquiries, and I saw you know the reaction of the president, and I was present at negotiations with Donald Trump. Um, during which, by the way, he never writes this topic anymore. Uh, For us, as for the country, let me explain. Um, It was a very difficult situation. After Russia, for the first time, annexed Ukraine, uh, invaded Ukraine, uh, we relied on the U.S. as really, you know, the most trusted partner. And if someone tries to stop uh, financing, you know, it's a big deal. Let me explain you that in 2013, when the revolution that you mentioned started in Ukraine, Ukrainian army was super weak. Um, we, like literally our army, our servicemen were painting walls instead of uh, uh, learning how to fight and training. The United States helped us and stood with us after the invasion and after annexation of Peninsula and provided this help so that our people, our servicemen, become a real army. So if, you know, this uh, aid could be stopped for us, this would benefit only one person and it would be Vladimir Putin. Because who knows, uh, you know, if he decided to invade us on large scale earlier or if our army wouldn't be able to defend the country right now during this large-scale war. This uh, aid is going straightly to the Ukrainian army. And the only uh, one uh, uh, institution that would become uh, weaker if we don't get this money, that would be the Ukrainian army. And when we see today the successes of the Ukrainian army, and when we as Ukrainians are proud of, of the Ukrainian army, we understand that there was this threat that perhaps it couldn't be that trained well, you know. And if we are very determined and if we are very devoted, but we do not have resources to fight, that makes the fight really, you know, very bad for us. Um, I saw that Zelensky was annoyed in many ways, but he was very um, sound about the fact that it was not about quid pro quo for us. For us, it was about the fate of our country, actually, and about the trust uh, of the partnership with the United States. Well, in 2019, you wrote a piece for The New York Times about Joe and Hunter Biden and their ties to Ukraine. Yeah, I was uh, helping uh, uh, The New York Times and I was a co-author of that article. And actually, The New York Times never refuted it. We had the whole documents um, so I leave it to the New York Times, you know, to decide what they want to publish. Now, you mentioned corruption and you write about the massive economic problems facing Ukraine, the entrenched corrupt oligarchs that are in league with Russia, the Kremlin's uh, repeated attacks to discredit Zelensky through disinformation and an army of bots and trolls. And, and one of your chapters, in fact, is headed Oligarchs and Fake News. Can you uh, go into that in a bit more detail? You know, Russia uh, weaponizes information space um, to use it against uh, democracies all around the world. Russia uses um, the fears of the society, the traumas of the society to divide the society uh, so that it can meddle in different spheres and Definitely Russia is interested in meddling into political spheres of, of the democratic countries. In fact, and there's I an get, article in today's Times about what they did with, uh, with the women's movement here. With, uh, not sure that I saw that article, but I definitely was reading a lot about uh, uh, information wars and how Russia tried to penetrate the information space in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It is the book, by the way, the New York Times bestseller, David Center. He works with the New York Times, my former colleague, and uh, it's the uh, perfect weapon. Uh, he describes in the details what Russia was doing in you know, social media, but uh, Ukraine became a test uh, ground for for Russia, for all this uh, uh, meddling and penetrations, you know, in information. Uh, Russia definitely uh, targets uh, big political leaders with fake news. Uh, I was one of the targets for the reason, not because, 
they wanted to target a press secretary. They were targeting targeting every member of Zelensky's team to undermine Zelensky as a leader of you know the country that wants to be the part of the free world. Um, so there were really a lot of things, starting from the fact that uh, when I started my job in the first month, there was a huge fake news that I bought myself a luxury car uh, with, with a template uh, with my name on it, which is absolutely ridiculous because I didn't have money, I didn't have car for it. And yeah, if I even had it, I would never put my name there, right? But it's the thing that the fake news, they spread six times more uh, than uh, uh, the truth. And the only thing we can do actually to speak up the truth more and to make it attractive uh, so that, you know, people try to repeat truth more and to believe in truth. Had you left the press secretary's office by April 2021 when Russia began mobilizing 150,000 troops along its border with Ukraine? Uh, I was present at the second Normandy meeting. That was not um, full because Putin uh, didn't want to meet Zelensky for the second time. Uh, it was in April 2021. And then Putin already started collecting uh, its troops around Ukraine's borders. Um, so I spent a few months um, during this uh, pre pre period of Russian preparation to, to the war. Why did you leave the job as Zelensky's press secretary? It's a very demanding job, and I've been there for 25 years. Uh, I see that Jane Psaki was in the position of President Biden's uh, spokesperson press secretary for 15 months. Uh, you can imagine how demanding it is. The first year we were uh, sleeping for, I was sleeping for three, four hours uh, every day. Uh, so I thought it was the time to move forward. You're listening to Let It Locate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. with Ilya Mendel. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, The Fight of Our Lives, the, uh, My Time with Zelensky, Ukraine's Battle for Democracy and What It Means for the World. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And I return now to Iulia Mendel to talk about her book, which is published by One Signal. She is a Ukrainian journalist who served as the press secretary and spokesperson for Volodymyr Zelensky from 2019 until 2021. Um, and uh, by the way, uh, she's going to be speaking at the Temple Emmanuel tonight. I was speaking last week at Temple Emmanuel. Oh, that was Emmanuel. last week. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, During uh, when the book was launched. You t you describe waking up to the sounds of explosions and air raid sirens on February twenty second, twenty twenty two. Hadn't you been told the night before by an advisor to the interior minister that the Russians would start their invasion that morning? Yes, you're correct. We are explaining these details. But first of all, let me say that even if we're reading all the intelligence information, uh, with our hearts, it was really very difficult to believe that someone can start such a large-scale war. And if uh, I live now in Ukraine... Even though he had mobilized those troops on the border for months by that time. <laughs> you know, Putin repeats the horrors from the past. He repeats the horrors that we watched in documentaries and that we read in the books uh, from genocidal practices, artificial famine, and World War II. No one believes it can happen in real time with you. 
so we thought, you know, there might be some escalation maybe in Donbass. But anytime, like there is the second reason, we, were, we didn't want to leave the country. We made this principal decision that it was important for us to stay. And on the second day, um, we left Kiev for western city of Lviv because we understood that Russian troops were really approaching very fast. And the only thing what we didn't want to do, we didn't want to stay encircled because then we understood we would, be, would not be able to do anything. And also, I was told that as a public figure, they can, you know, target me. And uh, I don't think that being tortured and being dead, I could do more at that moment for the country. So we stayed in Lviv. We traveled around the country trying to help. And as I mentioned, my then boyfriend, now husband, went to the front lines uh, in March. Um, we tried just to do as much as possible. To enlist. Because- but when yes. he went to a recruitment office, he was told there were enough soldiers already. <laughs> Yes, I know that. That was interesting because every man in the country, they had this inner uh, desire uh, that they need to be in the front line. It's like an instinct. And uh, uh, yeah, he enlisted uh, to the special forces uh, that were fighting in the south of the country. Um because he wanted to be there. He felt that he needed to be there as a man, and I just needed to understand that. Now, Putin called it a, quote, special operation to denazify Ukraine, despite the irony of the fact that Zelensky is Jewish. But uh, how intensive was his disinformation campaign and his attempts to discredit Zelensky through disinformation? Well, yeah, in the book, The Fight of Our Lives, I'm telling uh, about this information, disinformation that actually became another Russian's weapon. And they were targeting Zelensky for all two years. And the biggest fakes, they were coming from Russia. Um, You know, they were trying to undermine him, to make him less important, to look him, to to make him look bad for the people and, you know, for for the West. But I'm very proud that Ukraine managed to give a very good fight in information space. And thanks actually to the unification of the West, because there were a lot of American journalists who were in the places where Ukrainian journalists wouldn't be able to be for the reason that, you know, we just could be captured or even killed be, for being Ukrainians. And American journalists did amazing job and continue to do with revelation of everything that was happening, was going to a very difficult, you know, front lines and, and discover, like uh, describing all of this and standing for the truth. So with this unification of the Western journalism and Ukrainian efforts and with this, actually all the information mobilization in the country, we all managed to share the the truth with the world. I'm really very grateful grateful to every journalist who devoted their time to tell the story of Ukraine. It was crucially important. President Zelensky said that information is also very dangerous because nobody uh, 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 treats it as a weapon and nobody can ban information weapons. Um, he meant the social media and how disinformation can be spread in social media that is not regulated. Uh, but the fact is that the whole world showed that they do not agree uh, with having disinformation weaponized and winning this war that was crucially important. Although you were no longer Zelensky's press secretary, you were getting calls from media from many countries. What did you tell people at the time? Well, I'm, you know, staying in touch with the people with whom I worked and I owned the information. The first thing what was very important for me to try to spread the word because Uh, I switched on several TVs. It was Russian propaganda, it was Ukrainian TV, and it was CNN. And I was reading the news from everywhere, and I saw how much fakes, how many fakes Russia tried to spread there. Wait, you could get CNN in in Ukraine? Yes, of course, like online, there was online, yeah. Uh Yeah. I'm sorry Uh, for interrupting, but I was just surprised to hear that. 
No, we watch CNN too. <laughs> no, we are a civilized country. We have the access to Amazon, to CNN, you know. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the thing is that um, I started tweeting immediately uh, because I was just trying to describe what was going on in Kiev where I was. And I was in touch with my family in Kherson region in the south that at that moment was already uh, being uh, uh, occupied, like Russians were moving very fast there. And trying to explain the situation from the people whom I know from different regions just to tell the story, you know, uh, to, to, to tell the true story. And yes, I was in touch with many, many multiple of journalists and uh, then later I was in touch with the office of the president and during this war I also was in touch for several times with president himself. First of all, because of Kherson region, and I'm very grateful that he reacted. But the second was, uh, there was the Elon Musk. He wanted to have a conversation with President Volodymyr Zelensky. Perhaps he wanted somehow to contribute to restoration of, you know, some negotiations. And I know that he had a conversation with the Kremlin about uh, opening of humanitarian corridors and, you know, that if I could put them in touch and if these two powerful people could talk and do something, I, I, I would do anything for that. Um, so, yeah, that was, you know, just part of the job. For you to understand, for us as Ukrainians, our world around was collapsing. Everything that we were building, planning, dreaming about, everything was collapsing. So we just turned into one organism that was fighting this deadly disease, Russian invasion, and we were doing everything, literally forgetting about, you know, uh, sleep, food, <laughs> and necessities, you know, just working to, to stand for Ukraine. Well, the uh, UN General Assembly meetings are beginning today, I think, and everybody assumes that Ukraine is going to be the big issue but you're you're going back uh i'm going back on thursday yeah are you I going to attend the un at all this time uh, ukraine is represented by the first lady of ukraine mm. olena zelenska and i'm describing that her role is very important uh, in for, for president of ukraine and during this war uh, i'm describing this in the book the fight of our lives i know that the prime minister is coming and there are big voices from ukraine right now like uh, there was a female tyra who was fighting for ukraine and she was captured and she was taken out of captivity and and I'm sure that her voice is so important. Uh, we have a lot of uh, ministers coming right now. Uh, all of them, I know all of them, and they are talking in the White House, you know, and in the UN General Assembly. So Ukraine is represented very well. We have the whole diplomatic uh, circle of parliamentarians with whom I'm in touch too. So I think our voices will sound well. The only what matters if they will be heard, you know, because it's very important that. Uh, UN pays attention and UN reacts. You saw cars blown up by rockets on main roads and drove by a shopping mall that was attacked where eight people were killed. Um, I know I've thought about whether I would have wanted to cover the story if somebody had suggested that I go to Ukraine. And it just seems a little too dangerous. How much immediate danger did you personally experience? Uh, the very beginning of the war, it was pretty dangerous everywhere. In the first day of war, I'm explaining in the book, Russia targeted 16 regions and we have 24. And then others were targeted too. So uh, I will just explain one of our travels. Um, we came to Kiev when it was when Russian troops still were nearby uh, in the Kiev region. And we went to our friend's place and... At some point, Russians started shelling with grates. From there, I know that the grate uh, goes for 14 seconds. To, to It takes 14 seconds for grate uh, uh, ammunition to get to the target. And our building was just lucky because now I think if they change the angle a very bit, 
uh, I wouldn't be able to do anything like now. I, I just think we will be killed. Um, I remember that with my mind, I was not afraid, but my legs, I could not control them. They were shaken, simply shaken. Uh, when I went out to see what was going on after the shelling stopped, uh, like everything was on fire. Uh, the forest was on fire. The nearby buildings were on fire. Our car was damaged by shrapnel. Uh, after that, we traveled to the central Ukraine from where my uh, now husband went to war zone actually to the front line, I mean. And uh, we arrived to Vinitsa just to learn that Russians shelled it 30 minutes ago. And I then went to Lviv after that, to west of the country, just to learn that, again, Russia shelled it 30 minutes ago. So everywhere where I was traveling, we saw that Russia didn't stop sending missiles. There were a lot of... Uh, people who suffered, people who died, uh, kids uh, wounded, kids died, people were sending, sitting in the bomb shelters, and I was one of them, you know. But, you know, there is this feeling that we belong to this land, and there is the feeling if we stay with it, we can at least do something. That's why we made this decision to stay in the country. My guest is Iulia Mendel. She read a book called The Fight of Our Lives, My Time with Zelensky, Ukraine's Battle for Democracy, and What It Means for the World, published by One Signal Publishers. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. People are surprised that Ukraine has done so well in this war because it seemed almost impossible that it could defeat one of the most powerful militaries in the world. Um, do you think that people in the West underestimated Ukraine's bravery? I think that everyone underestimated Ukrainians. It's not only the West. Putin also underestimated us. He literally thought that he would be able to conquer the country in several days. Um ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. I'm talking to Americans who know Ukraine and they say if if any Russian came to Kiev, they immediately would understand that no Ukrainian would be happy to see Russians there as conquerors. Um, but right, uh, I think that uh, Ukraine for a long time was in the shadow of Russia. And that's why people literally thought that we would collapse in few days. But there is the country that said that we would collapse just in few hours. They did not um, estimate Ukrainian people. We are free by the default. <laughs> the freedom is such a big value for us. And I'm sure that every American will understand this. Uh, we don't want to be, you know, we will give a fight to any terror, any evil, because we believe that freedom is something that is very meaningful for us. That's why we stand there not just for the land. We stand there for our homes. We stand there for our families. And we stand there for democracy because we choose democracy and we share the values of the free Western world. Democracy must be as strong as autocracy if it wants to win. That's why we ask our partners to stand with us as much as needed until Russia stops this absurd, brutal, and bloody war. One of the problems uh, is that uh, Ukraine has relied so heavily on nuclear power, and right now uh, that is endangering uh, a number of people uh, because the the Russians don't seem to uh, be respecting the danger there as much as the rest of the world would. Well, I mentioned in the book, uh, The Fight of Our Lives, uh, this very big deal that happened back in 1994 when Ukraine gave up... um, the biggest one of the biggest nuclear powers we were the second biggest nuclear power Mm. and we gave our weapons actually to uh uh, russia uh under the security guarantee of the united states the united kingdom and russia that nobody will uh invade our territories and invade us as as an independent country and i'm sure that many ukrainians regret that decision because obviously uh we feel abused now uh from 
the the guarantor of our security but this doesn't mean that ukraine was going to restore our nuclear uh capacities uh and we are not going to do this in the future uh we belong to the civilized world and we believe that uh, nuclear is not the solution right now but we definitely need to defeat the goliath because it's david goliath uh, uh battle and we need to defeat the Goliath so that he does not repeat this brutal, uh, unpredictable, aggressive behavior. Did the COVID pandemic have any impact on Ukraine? Absolutely. <laughs> so on we top of everything same... <laughs> else, you had to deal with COVID. We have the same people who also suffer diseases and who also suffered from pandemic. At the very beginning, there were also a lot of fakes also coming from Russia, and people were desperately afraid of COVID. Um, probably uh, there were not good pictures coming from Ukraine when uh, the first group of evacuated people from China uh, was met with bullying and stones, and this story was around everywhere. And the President Zelensky took it uh, by himself to go and calm down the people. After two weeks, he came uh, to the place and he met the people and he hugged them and handshaked them to show, you know, COVID is the disease, definitely, and we need to fight it, but we cannot be aggressive towards those who might have a chance to have COVID. So it was very difficult for Ukraine. We were really the poorest country. Our healthcare system was not really very well prepared. Um and we were just dealing with it in real time, trying to find the masks, uh, trying to find uh, all the necessary equipment for those who suffered. And uh, we even tried to make the vaccine, but I no don't know the fate of the vaccine right now because of the war. Uh, but Ukraine was struggling as well as the United States, as the European countries and all other countries um, dealing with it every day. Zelensky, I was, I actually explain a lot about this, describe the meetings of Zelensky and the government um, uh, because uh, he was uh, collecting the government literally every day, figuring out what are the details, how many people suffer, what we are doing, uh, how he can help, how, you know, are there institutions can help and uh, yeah we managed to um, uh, we managed to go through several waves right now it's difficult and we are very grateful that the united states uh, recently has helped us with getting more vaccines uh, for the people because covid did not did not disappear with the war You've deleted a tweet in which you wrote that it would be a tragedy if Kamala Harris won the presidency. Do you do you want to clear up that controversy? You know, on one hand, imagine me sitting in the country that is collapsing and where people are tortured every day, where I he hear and see pain and you know, my heart was bleeding and is bleeding for every death in the country. Thousands die and, you know, I thought that that, well, that uh, laugh, it was not very appropriate. At the same time, later, at the same time, later, I talked to the people and understood, you know, that's something that happens. And uh, I understood that that was not for purpose. So if there was laugh, it was not against Ukrainian people. And that Kamala Harris stands, you know, with the United States, with the old leadership. And uh, she is one of the leaders who actually helps Ukraine a lot. Um, that's why I deleted that tweet. Now, just one more thing, because we don't have a heck of a lot more time. Uh, we get a sense that Putin is getting a bit desperate. And there are even fears that he might uh, expand the war by using nuclear weapons. Uh, how fearful are people in Ukraine about that uh, happening and, and uh, of this thing dragging on for quite a long time? We do uh, fear. We do worry about this. Um, people are talking about this a lot. 
uh, it is very exhausting to hear for months the propaganda that uh, threatens with nuclear weapons. And they do not threaten only Ukraine. They were literally counting how much time it would need for their nuclear missile to get to London, Berlin or Paris. And I'm not kidding. Uh, Every day, you know, they are trying to uh, say that they are strong, but seeing that they are uh, servicemen, that their army is being defeated in real time uh, by Ukrainian army and they cannot win, uh, they start using missiles, uh, ordinary missiles first. They are targeting our infrastructure, heating, electricity, mm. nuclear power stations. And, of course, we are afraid that Putin will be able uh, to get to this next stage of war. But this is not going to be the war only against Ukraine. It's going to hurt the whole world. It's the precedent that you know, cannot happen because we are afraid that it can drag, drag more countries and it can cost really, really a lot of lives. And you, you say that you're planning to return to Ukraine. To Kiev? I am planning to return to Ukraine, of course. Tomorrow. I'm having tickets back mm -hmm. uh, on Thursday. Uh -huh. uh, I'm coming back to Poland, and from Poland, I'm coming back to Ukraine. Um, you know, I like I'm the part of my people, and if it happens, then it happens. Well, you've said, I've dreamed all my life of telling the story of Ukraine. It's a triumphant one, a story not of victims, but of heroes in defense of freedom. And I thank you so much for talking about it with us. I've been speaking with Ukrainian journalist Iulia Mendel. Uh, she uh, served as press secretary and spokesperson for Volodymyr Zelensky from 2019 until 2021. 14 years of journalism experience on TV and print, and she's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, Vice, Political Europe, and many other publications. And the book is The Fight of Our Lives, My Time with Zelensky, Ukraine's Battles for Democracy and What It Means for the World, published by One Signal Publishers. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, and, and be careful when you get back home. I will try to resist any missile if it's there. <laughs> Thank maybe, you, Leonard, for talking. Thank and, you for and this maybe conversation. Maybe we can do a follow-up sometime uh, after you, you've uh, seen what's going on there. I would really love to talk to you again. I'd be absolutely happy. You can take my contact. I can provide it to producer, and uh, you can stay in touch, of course. Okay. Uh, that brings us to the end of our show. If you've just discovered this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can check us out on Twitter. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to wbai.org right now. That's give and the number 2 wbai.org. We need your help to keep bringing this unique, in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate right at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Fight of Our Lives, My Time with Zelensky, Ukraine's Battle for Democracy and What It Means for the World by Iulia Mendel. So why not make that call right now to 212 209 or go online to give to wbai.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for 10, 15, 20, 25, however many dollars you're comfortable with per month, which allows us to plan for the future. 
And you can do that until you decide to stop. And we'll say thank you with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's totally listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>